Well, what do you think? Well, it couldn't be any worse than the last one. Welcome to Slime City, home to the derelicts of society. I need some money. And land of murdering, melting monsters. With an appetite for whores, bums, and junkies. When Alex moves into an apartment haunted by the occult, he is seduced by spirits and slowly becomes a hideous, slime-spattered demon. Alex, you're hurting me. No, I'm killing you. With a stomach for evil. Fed up with this urban cesspool, Alex's girlfriend demands he pick himself up and escape the bloodthirsty supernatural forces around him. But the only way out of Slime City is for the innocent to confront the putrid powers of darkness. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Go back! Chris Honeywell is an internet loudmouth. Yogurt is probably the most healthy, delicious food ever. Hated and reviled by his few remaining friends, he catches the attention of Thomas DJ, perhaps the world's most cunning supervillain. Ensconced in his ultra-scientific hideout, with only his robot army and stunning assistant to keep him company, DJ springs into action. What is this idiocy? Virginia, use the molecular transmigration beam to bring this fool to me! Virginia trains the hellish mechanism, and with a clap like thunder, and in a blinding psychedelic light, Chris Honeywell stands before his tormentor. Normally, I do not suffer fools, but I see beyond the yawning chasm of ignorance that is your brain and the endless sluice of sewage which is your mouth that they form a basic animal intelligence that I may be able to mold to my own devices. Uh, okay. Therefore, in my mercy, I offer you two choices. Instant painless disintegration, or you study grindhouse movies at my feet now! Choose! Uh, I choose not disintegration. So be it. In one month, I shall assign you a movie to watch and will summon you again. Be ready, or the consequences shall be swift and merciless. Right, but how do I get to the... Now go! And thus began one of the most dangerous and unpredictable endeavors in evil sciencing. The Honeywell Experiment! Virginia, summon the subject! Did you enjoy the Himalayan yogurt we served while you were watching Slime City? 
you know, it smelled funky, but once you started eating it, it was oddly intriguing. Good, good, because we've got lots more where that came from. But, but um, so since we we have Greg here for the summer of slime, we figured I figured it would be nice to have you see his. Uh, this was your debut film, right? It is. It is debut film, Slime City, 1988, uh, which to me, rewatching it this week, gave me a very strong midnight movie vibe. Well, that's what it was. <laughs> there you go. We shot it in June of 1986. It took me two friggin' years to, to finish. It did not play in a grindhouse theater. It played as a midnight movie at the Bleecker Street Cinemas. I'm Bleecker Street, New York City, which uh, then went on to become Kim's Video, where I am one of the many places I had a job. By the way, somebody ne- needs to make a, a band called Himalayan Yogurt. I think that would be a great band name. Interestingly, there are a lot or were a lot. I can't say they're still around. There are a lot of bands out there that call themselves variations of Slime City there is a whole subculture of rappers in Connecticut that's part of the Slime City movement. And I can't keep them straight, <laughs> but I, their videos keep popping up on YouTube and they used to send me CDs and stuff. And for a little while, there was a feud between one Slime City rapper group and another Slime City rapper. Why aren't they hiring you to direct their videos? <laughs> I'm guessing they were shot in their basement. Like the diner and splatter you university yes. so you're basically like like um kung fu films were the inspiration for wu-tang clan you've it got is, a whole sub genre based on slime city it's not any something i could ever have anticipated i that that would make my life right there <laughs> it's pretty cool that's that's what art's all about man now this is the first time i've seen the film in 20 years last time i saw it was on vhs and i remember the thing is usually i have like with with movies that i haven't seen in a long time i have like a, a visual that i associate with it and this one i i have the visual of uh zachary slash alex um head on the floor mocking mary herner yes uh, the special effects of the ending are the reason why that film is still around today. And yeah, but on I, YouTube, it's that sequence is clipped so many times on yeah. YouTube is just yeah. like the the epic ending to Slime City. My favorite thing on YouTube though is uh, Despedazator, which is the entire film dubbed in Spanish. <laughs> and I will never report that because I enjoy it so much. <laughs> Well, it says here, because I, I love looking at alternate titles, and it says here that in Brazil it was referred, yeah, Despedadador is in Spain. In Brazil it was a maldacion de Zacari. Which translates to what? Decapitation of Zacari? The illness of Zacari. Ah, interesting. I've learned something new. I wasn't aware of that. I, I know we sold it to Brazil. I, I didn't realize they had a title change. And in England, where it was a video nasty, I guess, uh, it was the slime, which is right. it's not very interesting at all. Now, I, I've got a confession to make. 
I didn't realize until almost the end of the movie that Mary Herner was playing two roles. Mary Huner. Huner, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, yeah, a lot of people say that. A lot of people said that. And when we showed it during our midnight run, people still didn't realize it at the end because our original end credits roll was out of focus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why when you see it now, you see some zippy video titles yeah. that are in focus. I remember thinking, wow, he got Alan Rickman. (laughs) Alan J. Rickman. However, (laughs) uh, you've actually probably seen Al, Al, who worked in my films. He called himself Big Al from The Rock, and I met him on I Was a Teenage Zombie. He was in four to six episodes of Boardwalk Empire. Uh. And he played a guy... um, I don't know what his character was, but he played a very Jewish gentleman who always ran into Steve Buscemi because he was driving around the boardwalk in like a, a an early golf cart. Mm-hmm. And Big Al from The Rock, who speaks Yiddish in Slime City, as he walks away from the video store, he mumbles something you oh, can't okay. hear. He speaks y- Yiddish. He's actually credited in Boardwalk Empire as being the Yiddish translator. <laughs> so... This the, the, the thing that I, I was taking away from watching this now. First off, it's kind of Lovecraftian. And it may be, but I had never read any H.P. Lovecraft. Okay. And I wrote the script before Reanimator came out. And boy, I will tell you that sitting in the Criterion, watching Reanimator, uh, my heart just plummeted when I saw all the head gags. Because that came out, it came out just before we shot the movie. Oh dear! Yeah. It's got one of probably the ultimate head, like quote unquote, head gags in it of all time. You know, Reanimator. Yeah. Reanimator yeah. does. Yes. Yeah. Head- Literally a head gag. A, a, yes. A, a visual pun. Yes. I remember watching that on video with all my friends and everybody just going like, oh, my God, <laughs> Did that, that just happened. <laughs> I'm still amazed that they actually made a version that was a, that that uh, the Fox Network show. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. must have been interesting. A lot of stuff was blurred out. <laughs> well, my my note, my notes on this movie of just like the the three movies that that it was reminding me of were the fly from beyond which was after which was even after reanimator and basket case it had little vibe the the thing about this movie is it just watching it and this has been a movie that's and this is sort of the whole reason we have this podcast is i have so many movies on my radar i i grew up in a small town cultural vacuum where like I would hear about movies for years I would read about them in books and never have any way of seeing them you know the first time I went to New York City with my girlfriend and went to a real video store we just walked out with you know an armload of of movies the one I can remember is like I finally saw a copy of uh, of uh, um, Martin and was just like I can finally see this movie and I remember reading about Slime City in Film Threat. And uh, God bless they loved review. it. <laughs> that was one of the first good reviews we got. They loved it. And, and, like, and I took Film Threat at that time period. I took Film Threat was 
the only, you know, except for a few small published fanzine type yep. stuff, yep. the only outlet for like independent filmmakers and genre filmmakers. And so when I write about something, a good review in Film Thread, it's stuck in my head. So this movie's been stuck in my head as something I've had to see for years and years. And now watching it now, it brings back such memories of film school. This this movie is sort of like the ultimate movie, about, like myself and a bunch of other people in, in my film class would have liked to have done, you know, but, but never... It, it looks like a completed student film and is quality at the same time. So there's a lot of it, just the things of like basements, the hallways of the of the apartment buildings and the outsides of the apartment buildings remind me of so many film shoots that I had to be involved in where you had to shoot with where you lived and yep. and all this. And when I was watching it, I'd, I... Um, I had to look up where it was was filmed because I was like, was this filmed in Buffalo or was this filmed in New York City? Because I knew you'd I'd, I'd read that you'd gone to school in New York City. But man, looking looking at it in the apartments and stuff, it looks like it could have been. It reminds me of Buffalo of that time period and Rochester. Similarly, like the way the apartments looked and and stuff like that. So it was it there was that aspect of it while I was watching it on top of just like watching it as a film. So it was, I, Oh, I just, I loved it. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I had a very similar, uh, formation as you only, I didn't have the luxury of having video at all, but my exposure to horror films was magazines books mm -hmm. to this day. When I, when I see a certain film in my mind, my visual memory, will be a photograph of that film that mm -hmm. I saw in a book. And they were usually publicity stills that were slightly different than what you see in the film. But what I what I did have was uh, my uncle, who's in distribution, lived in Washington, D.C. first, and then, and still New York City. And I would come see him in the summer for, like, almost two weeks, and we would go see two movies every night. And he knew I loved horror films. So because I got to go to the big city, he took me to see Dawn of the Dead first run. He took me to see Martin first run. Um, so, so I had that one burst every year to see these movies. I, I still think that Martin is maybe, maybe George Romero's best film. Oh, I think so. And he thought so, too. That was his most personal film. He loved hey. that. Yeah, I, I remember, like, sitting down to it and going, like, this cannot possibly live up to what I've had in my imagination and being completely blown away by it. Another another thing that like speaking of pictures from books, I, the, um, I I was able to find dig up the Psychotronic Guide to Film when I was in high school, and that's where I get a lot of my photograph you know photographic right. memories right. and memories of the movies. And where sometimes I'll see an old movie and I'll be like, Have I seen this before? Or do I just remember the the you know the the blurb from it from Psychotronic. I, I can't quite tell. <laughs> well, Psychotronic and Film Threat were both incredible. Mm -hmm. I, I think Film Threat was one of the best magazines ever. And uh, I think Slime City was already out of distribution because of legal problems with the distributor by the time that review came out. And it made my day. I've, I've still tried to support it. You know, I, I, I frequent the, the website when I can. They recently gave 
a great review to Johnny Gruesome, my new film, and it completely made me love it all over again. <laughs> I forgive them now for the terrible review they gave my second film, Undying Love. <laughs> well, that, you know, that uh, now is Christian Gore still running Film Thread? I know he sort of bowed out of it for a while and somebody bought bought it when it went online and... I believe he came back and he was running a, uh, a crowdfunding campaign to try and amp it up somehow. And I don't know what his level of involvement is now. But, so uh, so you might have gotten a bad review in that brief period where they were on the where it was just sort of like a bunch of Internet people that bought it up and were like, let's get snarky. No, it was it was funny because it was the same reviewer who reviewed Slime City and it was a two page spread reviewing both of them. So they raved about Slime oh. City and then for Undying Love said everything that he got right in Slime City, he got wrong in this one. <laughs> but I couldn't be mad because the Slime City review. Was so yeah, good. No, Undying Love is the vampire film, right? The one with which the, the, the image that I remember is one of the characters with razor blades taped yes. to. That's the one, right? Yes, that was my that was my Martin influence. That film, mm-hmm. a downbeat, grungy, kind of anti-effects vampire film. So. What, what what was your intention when you started writing this uh, this script? Well, it's funny. Uh, the phrase that the film exceeded what you your imagination had uh, formed in your mind is the exact opposite from what I have. <laughs> it's not at all what I imagined. Um, I wanted a I wanted a, a scary movie. I didn't want a funny movie. And uh, Evil Dead had just come out, and every day walking to uh, School of Visual Arts, we would pass the Evil Dead, and I didn't really like the movie the first time. I love it now. But my partner, Peter Clark, on Slime City, he was the, the cameraman. He loved that film. I came to New York City, and Basket Case was playing its two two-year midnight run. The theater I worked at, the National in Times Square, the Deadly Spawn played there. Ah, uh, yeah. We were making these really bad Super 8 films at the School of Visual Arts, and I mean, they were depressing. I, I had classmates who were making films, entire films about their Starlog collection. Um, <laughs> I was like, I don't want to be making these short films. I want to make a 16-millimeter film that will play in a theater. Right. And uh, I wrote the script, and uh, I, kind, I kind of took Rosemary's Baby, the idea of the apartment, and I wanted a gross-out ending because that's what Peter loves. So we were going for the Evil Dead with the ending. And then there were little, you know, I took a little bit from the Wicker Man with the dance that Mary does. Ah, I, I was, I was wondering, going to ask you about that. Yeah, I did the Wicker Man dance that Brad Eklund did without the nudity. Yeah. <laughs> um, so all, there were all these little influences that I just mashed together in the script. I didn't have an electric typewriter, so I would hammer out drafts of the script. I'm a manual typewriter. But when I moved to New York City from, you know, the little town of Fredonia, I moved into the uh, Sloan House YMCA. That was our dorm on 34th Street and 9th Avenue, which at that time was sleazy as hell. I mean, we talked about in the, in the earlier podcast how much we love the old Times Square. Well, this was the same thing. It was all attached. I would walk from Times Square to, to Sloan House, which is now, of course, luxury condos. Um, but on that strip, I mean, the, the Moonies, the cult was based across the street. 
and they would be out there on the sidewalks with their chalkboards and we would stop and like sort of lead them on and make jokes about them. And we'd go to breakfast at these diners where the hookers and drug dealers were getting off work. And, you know, I was fresh faced and innocent. So all these things are what I put into the script. So that's where the bums and the prostitutes and the cult that Zachary called. It all came from what I dealt with in that one year that I went to film school. Right. It's, it's funny. We, um, I, I, in, at RIT, one of my student films that I wrote for um, one of my roommates had almost the, uh, not visually, but character-wise, the same, and acting a- acting level, the same nonplussed hooker that is taking his bandages off and yours, just that same sort of, like, nothing is going to uh, bother me, hooker, and the combination of the acting being like I, I like I would I would have to say that that hooker in the whole movie was probably the worst acting in the in in that whole movie where the acting was was pretty good, uh, but she she reminded me of she reminded me of our hooker. <laughs> well, here's the story about that actress Eva Lee. She came out. She gave an audition. She was fine. You know, she's she's pretty good. I learned after the audition that she had gone into audition for a trauma film where they also asked her to play a hooker, and she flipped out and said, all you ever do, all you people ever do is audition Chinese girls to play hookers, and then stormed out. She didn't storm out on me. Came time to shoot. She showed up with a bodyguard, this big, huge guy who proceeded to eat all of our food. Like, <laughs> everything. We're shooting the scene, and, you know, she's fine. She's kind of funny. She's, she's working. We pull out the razor blade, which had been filed down, and she freaks out. What the hell are we going to do? I'm rubbing it back and forth on my wrist, showing her you can't possibly get hurt. So at 3 a.m., we're ready to shoot the gag, the scene, and I just had to get it in the camera. So, I mean, we probably did it. We did. We never did anything more than twice because film was so expensive. And that's what we got. Um, for years, I my stomach would curdle when she would utter that line. And now when I see it with an audience, and the, you know, I, I show the film to an audience every year. Somebody will invite me somewhere to show it. Uh, now I look forward to it because I know the laughter that's going to come. So that, that's, right. that's sort of the evolution on how I look at the whole film. I cringed for a long time and had a hard time watching it. And now I'm able to, uh, you know, stop worrying and love the, the atom bomb. See, my favorite character. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I mean, those the, the the warts and all part. I mean, just on that level of production, you just can't. <laughs> you you, the 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 goal is to get something like that finished, especially like at that phase in your career. It's like, I I, I had a roommate who was like that. He was just like, I just want to get it done. <laughs> I condensed the incident greatly. I mean, we spent an hour trying to get that shot. And I mean, everybody was like, oh, my God, how did we get here? Yeah, that and, we can't get this one line reading. Well, but I just, you know, people are like, oh, man, why did they get such a horrible actress? It's just like, well, what did you want them to do? Audition hundreds of actresses till you got the perfect. <laughs> it's It just doesn't. It just. What um, I didn't understand is you shoot coverage. So, I mean, I could have had the back of her head and dubbed her with somebody right, else. Right. But, you know, it's part of the charm of the film now, so I'm... Yeah, I'm no, no, that film there. is is <laughs> like, a, you can see it was a learning process. As 
any any film would would be at at that. Another question I had when you were saying film is expensive was this wasn't shot in 16 millimeter was it was this 35 millimeter it was 16 millimeter it was 16 millimeter the reason that it looks good we shot i'm well it looks good in that respect is that we intended to blow it up to show it in theaters and we didn't have any money left so we never did a blow up so you don't have that extra layer of grain that basket case and splatter university and all these other films have yeah uh, the downside is when you do a blow up you know 16 is a square frame it's like full right. video you crop the top and the bottom, you lose a third of the picture. So we composed the shots for the blow up. So there was always a lot of headroom at the top and, and space at the bottom. It was never meant to be a square. It was always meant to be a rectangle. So when it was released on VHS, for me, I couldn't watch it because I looked so incompetent. But then when it was released on DVD, Camp Motion Pictures, who've been very good to this film, um, they brought me out and they allowed me to supervise the transfer. So I was basically able to compose the shots with the, you know, with the proper aspect ratio so that it looks the way I meant it to look. Yeah. And, and that was, um, one of the things I noticed that like make, make this movie stand out is it visually, visually it's, it's nice looking, um, the sound is is really good, which is usually some spots. <laughs> Sometimes when you're outside, you can hear women talking in a language that you don't quite recognize. That's because the Greek neighbors refused to be quiet and even talked louder when we were shooting, and we just had to keep going. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> compared to to other stuff I'm used to, it was it was not, I was never struggling to hear something or or you know or or one person would sound obviously ADR'd or whatever. Right. We made the effort. I mean, and the music. Um, the music, it, definitely, I agree with you on that. That rose above, and you know, I imagined at the time that we would get somebody to do a synth score. It would be like Splatter University, and I'd give him a couple hundred bucks. And I met with this musician, Rob Tomorrow, who was a jazz musician. And he came in with some demos that had horns and, and different instruments and a $2,000 budget. And I was a sucker, uh, anything to make the film better. Okay, so let's go for it. So we spent a lot more on the score than most people making films with similar budgets did. And yeah, it stands out in the score. Uh, people often comment on that score. It's, it was worth it. It was worth it. It adds to it a lot. But the baseline that makes this movie work is is uh is a script it's it's you know you're not uh, there I, I was thinking like if what would have gone wrong with this movie is if it had folk like would have been a common thing is to focus more on the the machinations of the cult and details on how everything worked but you you kept that aspect of it simple. You kept everything si- simple in in the story for it. You know, you 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 eat the slime and you drink the juice and you start and that starts happening. Nothing. You create the rules, then you stick to it. Yeah, and and you don't and you don't the the didn't gild the lily with it. So it it just it moves along. You don't everything doesn't have to be explained. It's a it's a simple story and. So it gives the the dialogue and the and the 
interactions with the characters room to breathe and it just it keeps it moving and and um yeah i really i really like the script for this well thanks i i have a very improvisational style like uh-huh. i don't map out my scripts sometimes i know what some of the key scenes are i know who the characters are that's what i start with mm-hmm. i knew that i was going to have that gross out ending i made everything up as i went along though what happens next now what happens okay now i gotta have a scene where somebody talks about what happened to the cult so I made it all up as I got through the script and discovered it. And I mean, I rewrote many drafts, but on a manual typewriter, having to read the whole thing to change one line of dialogue. But the scenes never changed. It was like just dialogue adjustments here and there. So it, it doesn't feel like that, though, to me. It, it felt it felt it. It reminded me of a, a Cronenberg movies, a fly in particular, where it's like something's happening to a person and it's just the progression of of them going downhill and uh or like even dead ringers maybe <laughs> or just cronenberg well, in general but, I, I'm you know, sure it was a cronenberg influence um in telling the story i was a big fan of the brood so i liked body horror before i even knew, knew what it was videodrome of course um the script had been written before The Fly, but when I had when I had meetings with the special effects guys, Scott Coulter and Tom Lawton, two very talented guys who've gone on to have very good careers, uh, th- we would reference things in The Fly. Uh, they would more than me, but I mean, so that was definitely in execution. That was definitely conscious, even if it wasn't in the writing of the script. I'm a big Cronenberg fan. I love him. Yeah, it, it just has that that feel of of uh, impending doom. You know, this once once a guy eats a slime, that's the end of him. You know, there's there's no turning back, and it's just the 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 constant slope downward. You're also you're also dead on with your uh, your your comparison to student films, because all I had done up to that point was silent Super 8 films. I'd never worked with sound, and I wrote the script, and I said to my friend Peter, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna make this movie, and we were actually gonna make it the same summer as Street Trash." <laughs> we didn't know how to raise the money <laughs> and uh i volunteered to work on i was a teenage zombie after i wrote the script specifically to learn how to make a low budget film what what are the what are the things you need to know the logistics and i got peter on who was my dp as an assistant cameraman on i was a teenage zombie and we got robert sabin on who's the sara slime city um as an actor in the film so that we all were basically apprenticing in the positions that we would do our own film on. But it's for me, I look at that film as my equivalent of a film school education because I only did film school for one year. Well, it's like, um, it, um, Didn't, uh, Brian Trencher Smith say to us that the best, the best school is doing well, the, here, here, yeah. And I've thought a lot about that. And, and nowadays I would never urge anybody to go to film school unless they were going to some like very tech oriented, you know, to learn strict technical stuff. And even then it, but, but in that time period in the eighties and for, and I was right at the end of it i wish i had been forward thinking enough to not go to film school and save that money to like actually buy equipment and just film stuff but at that time like i went to film school because that was my only way to get my hands on the equipment i needed you know like in like a, a, a flatbeds to do 
16 millimeter editing or, or video editing there was no resource to do that i i had to like save money with a couple of my friends to buy a camcorder in high school to play with and so so you went to film school nowadays you don't have to do that nowadays you know you you can on a lot of low budget films the camera's a a digital slr you know yeah i understand the arguments uh, pro and con for film school um i actually think that you can pick up the technical stuff easier on set i actually think if you want to be a writer say it it can help you to to study under someone the other thing about film school is you can walk out of it with a degree and and maybe when your career doesn't happen you can fall back on teaching teaching after work exclusively in video stores and movie theaters like I have most of my life. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just, yeah, I just, yeah, Brian Trenchard Smith was anti, very, I'm, I'm kind of anti, the, the, the best thing I got out of film school besides actually having to get to use the equipment and stuff like that was meeting other people that, that ended up being, you know, going off and doing stuff yeah. and being connections and stuff like that. But that would have happened, and most of the people I know that work on film did not come out of it for film school. And even the, my friends who were in film school didn't really, like, one friend who's been working for 20 years, you can't even get a hold of him, he's working so much. Yeah, got I know. a job like, as a, an electrician because the guy who was an electrician met him on set, and they were both Irish and knew a lot of Irish drinking songs and got drunk. And he said, hey, whenever you come to New York City, look me up. And he did, and he's been working for 20 years now. I had one friend who was, he worked in fast, he was a punk rock guy that worked in fast food places. And his girlfriend, he had a girlfriend who worked at QVC and got him a job as a QVC cameraman. And now he's doing camera work all over the place. Well, my classmate was Jimmy Miro, who directed Street Trash, and he went on to become the top Steadicam guy in Hollywood. For years, I mean, he would get a six-month gig out of James Cameron film, and then he became uh, he got an Oscar nomination as the DP of Crash, and he's directed he directed some episodes of uh, Longhorn. Uh, I mean, he's had he's had a fantastic career. Which Crash, the Oscar Crash or the Cronenberg Crash? The Oscar one, not the Oscar not, Crash. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the one we and, like talking about. And 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 it's better to go to film school say in new york city <laughs> because yeah, sure. you have a greater concentration of talent and and people you know people to meet whereas um like half, half the people in my class at rit picked film because they were like oh that sounds like an interesting major yeah you know the f- films the other thing about film school is uh, the quality of the teachers is a big part of it the quality of your fellow students is a big part of it. These things all affect what yeah. you bring to the table, and circumstance is such a, a big part of it. Um, I recommend people not go to film school, but I have worked with plenty of uh, film school graduates who are great. And I didn't get the basic working knowledge of working with sound that I would have gotten from a second year of film school. And the Slime, well, here, the slime City would have been even better. Well, here's the thing, though. that that's, a, that, that's one of the things I noticed is that was the – greatest i had uh, uh, rit is a technical school so there were a lot of technical minded people in my classes so there were a lot of people who were really into like getting their cinematography perfect and stuff and the thing that would always 
be the biggest problem with everybody's film, their senior films, the ones they worked really hard on would be inconsistent sound, you know, garbled, just, just all, all sorts of terrible, terrible sound. Nobody seemed to get it right. So whenever I see that, that student film aesthetic, I immediately like buckle down for dialogue that I'm not going to understand that, that, that I can't hear. I'm not sure who's saying it and stuff like that. And there was none of that in, in this. And there's really no excuse for it these days because there's programs no. out there to clean up sound and, yeah. uh, you know, there's, there's just people out there who know how to do it. So it's a lot easier to do now than it was then on, on that level. Yeah. And the technology has gotten to the point Yeah, where I was watching a documentary the other day on um, George Miller was filming uh, the um, Fury Road movie and uh, th they had you know a little little mic on everybody's collar you know like a lavalier type of you know wireless mic on everybody and just all going into a mixing board yeah. and it but the technology's gotten to the point where that works now and yeah. it sounds natural whereas back back in those in the the 80s if you tried to pull off some sort of setup like that, it would have been the, the worst mess logistical yeah, nightmare in the world. It was all boomed back then. Now you yeah. boom and you have the lobs and you have and you'll have one or the other. But um, yeah, and, and another <laughs> another film school. Um, there's I have two more film school notes in my notes about things, and that was, and one of them is is partially an 80s thing too and it's the the whole like this is a good girl the good girl and the bad girls in in movies of those days you know the 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 bad girl and the black it's the always black. brunette <laughs> yes yes a blonde and a brunette and, well, uh, and it's another a very film noir kind of concept that laurie's always wearing white and um nicole is always goth out in black and 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 maybe it's just the the time period it was filmed in the clothes and the hairstyles from that but it's very it was very there were there were a lot of good girls bad girls in in film school that that looked like those two and the hooded figure in a dream <laughs> <laughs> that was a big film school thing and 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 uh we our school is near a really nice huge ornate graveyard so there were 500 films every year featuring featuring this graveyard I think we put Zachary in a hood specifically so that that gag where he collapses into thin air would work you know the Star Wars thing yes the the effects guys Scott and Tom they were really the two people plus plus Ivy Rozovsky our uh, costume designer who had been on plenty of films and knew what they were doing. The rest of us had no idea what we were doing. So well, any suggestion, we followed it. The, the, the gore effects are, yeah, the, 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 the set piece at the end and uh, that, that everybody focuses on is, is great. And his, his um, facial appliances are wonderful too. They're very, very nice and realistic. And it also helps when you pour slime on top of everything. Yeah. Well, it actually, makes everything looked good and gooey. They looked better. <laughs> they yeah, were biological. They look, but it's like so, aliens. Uh, 
meticulous and artful, and then you pour the slime on, and, and you lose all that detail. Um, yeah, two, two stories um, about these are the woe is me stories. I told you in the Splatter You thing that I met with these guys who were uh, financing Alien Space Avenger for Richard Haynes, and uh, they were going to finance the film for 150000 we shot it for thirty-five thousand, got through editing, and then needed another twenty to do all the, the final costs. So, fifty-five thousand. Um, they were going to give me one hundred and fifty, which meant everyone would have gotten paid. The film wouldn't have taken two years to complete. It just would have been a whole different uh, ball game. Because you know, when Slime City came out in '89 on video, the video market collapsed from all the direct-to-video shit. So it, it really didn't enjoy the success it would have if it had been finished even one year earlier but uh we were all ready to sign the contract my lawyer i had a really good entertainment lawyer that frank hennenlotter and his his producer edgar ivins had hooked me up with and he kept cautioning me yeah this may not work out it seems so sure and then i went out to uh hard rock cafe with one of the producers and uh he said to me you know we've been uh talking about it and uh jerry the best friend he's really the most likable character so we, we think he shouldn't be killed and i said no but he he has to kill that guy so you realize he's a, turned a corner and he has to be killed at the end he said well that's the other thing um we don't think that alex should die at the end we, we believe that love should save the day and i said, <laughs> and they said well, that's what happened in a nightmare on elm street too and i said but that film was terrible and they said, you can't argue with success. And I said, well, I don't want to change the ending. And I knew. I mean, that ending was the first thing I'd ever written. And that I ending knew, is the money shot. The whole I yes. That ending, there was no film. And if I had taken the deal, yes, I would have had some success, some financial success in terms of the, the production of the film. Who knows what would have happened after it. But my instincts were, you, you can't do this. And I told them that, and I never heard from them again. Uh, the other thing that the other thing that happened is while we were in editing, you, you had mentioned also in Splatter you that uh, Richard Haynes had gotten a hundred thousand or one hundred and fifty thousand from Vestron Video, the biggest video company in the world. They had sent a guy to look at our rough cut of the film on a steam back at a place called Young Filmmakers, where you could rent this stuff really cheap, and they liked it. And the numbers that they were talking about were one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. At that time, I was I was working in theaters that frequently showed Vestron movies that they were producing themselves. They were like, why should we invest in these films when we can produce our own? But they had bomb after bomb after bomb. None of them made money. And we were waiting. We were actually waiting on getting the first contract from them when they had their first success with Dirty Dancing. It was a huge hit. Opening weekend. And that Monday, after it opened, they put out the word, we're not spending any more money on low-budget shit. So then it took me almost another year to raise the finishing money, and by then the market had changed. That's how close it was. Was the intention always to be that this was going to be a midnight movie? Because, like I said, I I was reminded a lot of Liquid Sky and the look and feel of it. Yeah, it was. and, And it was because... Like I said, Basket Case was playing as a midnight movie when I moved to New York City. And Jim Muro, who worked on Street Trash, he got his start working as a production assistant on Basket Case. So we had like inside dirt on that. And he was in the dorm with me and our little group in the dorm would go see it. You know, I didn't go every weekend, but I went several times. So we knew that midnight 
uh, thing was cool. And and I love midnight movies. And in fact, one of the reasons that I only went to film school for one year was I went to midnight movies every night that I could. And I tended to start missing classes and had A's and incompletes. (laughs) You probably saw all the classics on the big screen. Almost all of them. But yeah, so many. And, uh, you know, H3 Playhouse, uh, Cinema Village, there was a St. Mark's. Cinema so I'm trying to remember, there, there was one on 6th Avenue, and um, that might, might be the St. Mark's. I, I, that's where I saw Liquid Sky, and for some bizarre reason, they did a 3D Jamie, uh, a 3D porno as a midnight movie. Yeah. Which See, was... Yeah. This this movie is truly on that edge of that that the edge of Grindhouse basically. I think if, if you if you count that it, it, you have to count Times Square as Grindhouse Ground Zero. That basically, yeah. and that was when the industry changed and when that actual area physically changed. And you were, and this movie sort of skirts both sides of it, you know. If it if it had come out a year or two earlier, you know you you, you might have had it played in the yeah. grindhouses there. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, I think what separates it from a lot of a lot of the these films though is uh, it's got an edge, but it's a very light edge. It's a very naive movie. There's a lot of innocence and naivete to it, and it's got sort of a friendly quality to it that some of the similar films with the similar budgets didn't necessarily have, other than Teenage Zombie, which definitely didn't have that. <coughs> Slasher you. Splatter <coughs> you. Splatter you. I wouldn't yeah. say there's anything ugly about Slime City like I did right. say Splatter you. Although I, w- I was once a manager of a uh, stock footage agency called Archive Films, and I had all these younger film school students working under me. And one time a guy uh, asked to see it. He borrowed it. And he came back the next day angry at me, and he said, that was just grotesque. And I was like, oh. I, like, he was hostile towards me, that I had made the movie. Now I, I see it, I'm just like, well, it's so silly, how can anybody take it seriously? Yeah. Right. It's, it's. I mean, and that's the thing, is it, it's not It's not a funny movie. It has moments of, of humor in it, you know, but even that humor is, te- like, what, one of my favorite moments is where the guy stabs him in the gut, and then he bites off his hand. And but the two, his two friends are just standing there. The, 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 the one shot, the, the, just before he bites off his hand, he, you know, he clenches his jaw, too. So he's clenching his jaw while biting the hand off. And that's just a great moment. And it's kind of funny, and it's kind of gross. But and at the same time, the way it's cut and the way it, it's it's visceral. You feel it. You feel him clamp down his jaw. I don't think it would have worked if you didn't have the shot of him clamping down his jaw. And uh, it's just fun. And then it's and then the the only like thing that I think of as a joke gag in the movie is the guy running back for his boombox. Yes. And grabbing his grabbing his boombox, which is actually probably something that would happen in reality because boomboxes were expensive and we're expensive back like that. that joke was created by peter clark the uh, cinematographer is just one of those hey he should do this and we did it uh when i watch it with a live audience generally the audience has a lot of people who haven't seen it before and there's a certain point maybe 40 minutes in where i can feel them getting a little antsy and i know that if everybody just sits put until that scene that i've got them 
but it's, it's, it's a bit of a, a test for some people. And I, I have had walkouts, you know, people who just thought it was boring. But once we get to that point, um, I know I have them. And the lesson I learned from that is that you need a scene like that in the middle of a film. And that's something that Roy Frumkus, who wrote and produced Street Trash, told me. And you know, in Street Trash, you have that big game with the keep away with the penis. That's in the middle of the film. Yes. So you've had an outrageous moment in the middle of the film. And for this type of film, that, that's pretty important. I, yeah. I thought I was doing character development, which is a joke because there really isn't much character development. But I thought I was following a more classical structure in holding back to a certain point. And I would have been better off having stuff a little sooner. And, and when you have a scene like that, as soon as you realize that's happening, it makes you think, what is – Okay, this is halfway through the film. What is coming after? You know, something's coming after this, and like uh, and a good example of that of doing that right at the top of a movie was um, um, John Carpenter, Big Trouble in Little China. I remember my friends and I going to the theater to see it, and I made everybody see the movie because I'm like, that's John Carpenter directed. It's got Kurt Russell in it. We have no idea what it's about. It's gonna be good, and they're like, I don't know. It looks stupid. And uh, and that there's a scene with Kurt Russell. It is in the the truck, and they're sort of like, I don't know about this. But then there's the scene with the old Asian guy talking to the the police about you know what happened, uh, sort of you know before the flashback. And then he puts his hands together and has the lightning between it. And I could all my friends went, Oh, okay. It's going to be like that. And from that point on, they were receptive to everything. You know, they were open to everything that movie had coming. And uh, and you back it up with that ending, you know, you, it, that that scene, that scene sort of like topping uh, Videodrome with with uh, James Woods putting the gun in his and it, it sort of takes it to its natural thing. And then and then the ending delivers on it. Well, it's important for a film to deliver on what it promises, I think, is the lesson. And Larry Cohen is a perfect example of a guy who delivered early on and kept it going. My uh, hero. He was awesome. It's, it's funny. He, for another podcast, really... I had to watch the movie. I said um, um, we, we, we record ahead a little bit, and, and I was like, well, July's coming up. Is there a patriotic horror movie that we can do, like something with a killer Uncle Sam? And one of the guys goes, oh, that's Uncle Sam. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I'm watching Uncle Sam, and uh, I'm like, ooh, this looks pretty awful. But then I'm watching the credits, and then it's like screenplay by Larry Cohen. And uh, and pretty much ve very much like uh, um, Slime City. You, you can see the screenplay affecting the movie for the better, you know, on, on that movie. The, the, the execution of it, uh, <laughs> If you want maybe to see not a better greatest. collaboration between William Lustig and Larry Cohen, you should check out uh, Maniac Cop. Yes, yeah. Which I saw a year ago on a big screen. It was at a, a festival in Philadelphia. It had five of us out there. And uh, there were films that were, it was the class of 88, so it was five films from 1988. And Lustig came out and showed a 35 millimeter print of Maniac Cop. Was it Maniac Cop or two? It was Maniac Cop, which played at a theater I managed. It was another one of those films. Mm -hmm. But Larry I, Cohen. I saw an opening day at the UA Midway, so. 
Cohen for me, uh, he's the one who started the thing that I consider myself part of. Like Larry Cohen, even though he did films in L.A. and New York, who started the New York sleaze thing, and then Frank, and then Lloyd, and then you know me and me and Jimmy came along with Slime City and Street Trash, and somewhere in there also is uh, Jeff Lieberman, you know, who did uh, a bunch of great films. Blue, Blue Sunshine, Jeff Lieberman, yeah. right? Oh, right. Okay. And he did my, my favorite slasher film uh, from. From Dust Till Dawn, I think it's called. Very the, um, Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez. No, 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 no. no, no. Now, um, what is the name of that film? Four people go camping in the Oregon woods, and there are twin mutants who are stalking them. Dead end? Wait until dawn, maybe it is. Wait until dawn. I'm looking. I'm looking. Just before dawn? Just before dawn, yeah. Great film. I've heard of that one too. That might be one I've not seen. You guys should seek that out. And if you haven't seen I Was a Teenage Zombie, you should seek that out. And, uh, if you like that and want to do a show, I can hook you up with George Seminara. He'd probably be a great, great guest. Cool. Cool. You see, I, I, I rather like Blue, Ve- Blue Sunshine. Yeah, it's a good film. And one of the, the things I like about it is it has this kind of almost cinema verite look to it a lot of handheld stuff yeah and it's crazy it's a crazy movie <laughs> yeah i made john west from lost in spaces in it I, that's that's another one thomas we might want to throw on the pile of ones to do because that's one i've been meaning to watch for years and i mean the combination of of odd cult and lsd which is like i guess mandy is going to be in that too is yeah. something i always i always like so i've been wanting to see that one for you and i'd read about it for years and years and years also starring the great zalman king yes but master of showtime well i was gonna say maniac cop was like one of those movies that i actually got to see because it was it sort of burned up hbo Maniac Cop and Maniac Cop 2 for some reason HBO loved to show those late at night and uh, what was that other movie The Darkness they used to show that one a lot and just an odd choice for it you know maybe it would have been something that you'd expect on Cinemax but like in middle school all my friends and I got to see Maniac Cop (laughs) now I want to talk for a second about Roman, who is probably my favorite character in the film, because he reminds me of a lot of, because I used to be involved in the East Village, uh, the East Village, like, punk scene when I was younger, so he reminded me a lot of some of the people that I knew during that time. He was, he's sort of the, the mystery. There, there were two actors in that film. I've stayed friends with these people. Robert Sabin is one of my best friends. Mary Huner is a great friend of mine. Tom Merrick, who played Jerry, the best friend. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, on Facebook, I'm still in touch with Terry Spivey, who played Seaman, the, the lead mugger, mugger who got his arm bit off. Um, but uh, the guy who played Roman, and his name escapes me, Dennis, Dennis Embry. Embry. He completely disappeared, and I never heard from him again. And and uh, so did T. Clay Dickinson, who played Hagrid the Bum. And 
Dennis Embry was actually going to be Johnny Gruesome when I wanted to do it way back then and couldn't get the money. Ah. He, they, both of those guys were gay, and I, I've always had a bad feeling that Dennis Embry may have uh, fallen to AIDS. Yeah. Been able to, to find any record of him. But well, yeah, that was another time really period that was feeling. going on then. Yeah, it definitely was. Uh, we have the line, um, you know, what have you got? Leprosy? And I actually had AIDS in the script, and, and a friend of mine said, no, you, you probably don't want to do that. So I allowed him to censor me, and in that case, he was correct. <laughs> that would that joke would not have played at all. Um, the other instance that where I allowed myself to be censored was after Alex kills the hooker, I had a scene of him sawing her body up in the bathtub, and, and he said, no, people won't sympathize with him. I, I think I should have kept that that. I think, but whatever. Dennis was, uh, yeah, he was very good in that part. So you, you attended this for a midnight movie circuit. And then it came out, like I said, I saw it on VHS. And then, um, and then it disappeared from VHS. Yes. Um, they gave us an advance. The advance was earned back quickly. We were at the point where we were supposed to get money back, and they got it in mom-and-pop stores all across the country. Mm-hmm. And then... The statement stopped coming, and I would call, and the head of the company would answer and pretend not to be him, and then he disappeared, and there were stories that he had been involved in some sort of shooting, and that either he'd been killed or he went into witness protection. We didn't know, Um, and I finally learned from Fred Olin Ray five, six years ago when I started working with Fred. He comes to Buffalo a lot to shoot movies, uh, that in fact, he had been involved with a shooting. He was a porn guy. And he had killed somebody, and he's still in prison. But what ended up happening is the film then became available, unavailable, and we never got money for it. And because we had a seven-year contract with them, we had to wait six years before we could release it again. And with Camp Motion Pictures, that came along, and first they put out a 10th anniversary VHS, and then several years later they put out a DVD, and then few years later they put out a two disc dvd of all my films and then last year they brought out the blu-ray so they that's why i say they've been very good uh the film will never make a profit but it at least is available and is constantly reintroduced to new audiences what made you decide to return to the 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 cult of flesh mythos back in 2010 i had uh, given up on making films i i threw in the towel because Mm -hmm. After Slime City, I did Undying Love, which got a great review in the Daily News, and then there were mishaps at the theater three weekends in a row, and we went from having lines to get in to having nobody. And then I you know who the Phantom of the Movies was? Yes. Yeah, I met him. He came to the set of Brain Damage. Okay. I used to read his column all the time. He was not a fan of Slime City at all, but he supported it. He promoted the midnight screening, and he did give it a very good, uh, you know, two and a half stars isn't great. Yeah half out of five, but it's a very good review for a low-budget film in the New York Daily News. <laughs> he always reminded me of a more... <clears throat> I don't want to use a phrase like... Mainstream psychotronic. Mainstream, yeah, mainstream Michael Weldon. He was yeah. more like... He leaned more towards the Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel, where he would get a little like... Huffy, Huffy is isn't the word. I I like I loved his magazine. I used to read the magazine all yeah, the time. Me too. But but uh, I you know but psychotronic was always a little grubbier and dirtier and and I follow and yeah. 
I thought he was a good writer. Uh, I mean, I like yeah. this. I, I, I think the magazine's still out, I think. I always got the impression that he was um, doing a, a John Bloom. Maybe. And basically expressing, you know, that he that he was a, a critic somewhere else, but he saved all his love of the of of genre pictures in, for this identity. Yeah. Um, to get back to your question, though, I, I the, and the third film was Naked Fear, which I shot on high A, and I couldn't give that away. I did give it away. It's free on Amazon Prime now, but my distributor just took it as an extra feature for Undying Love. Um, I moved to Buffalo, and I decided that the career path I was going to take was to take screenplays that I could not, that were too big for me to do on my budget, and turn them into novels and maybe create properties that other people would be interested in. And uh, I wrote a six book series called The Jake Hellman Files, which George Mahalko, the director of uh, My Bloody Valentine, has been developing as a TV show for a few years now, and there's some progress on that. But that was the plan, to be an author, to be a horror author and have somebody pay me a lot of money for these books. And I, I had a little bit of success as, as an author. But what happened is the digital technology came out, and I saw what you could do with it. And I was like, hmm. And uh, I was going to direct a movie called Prison of the Psychotic Damned. I was going to do it just as a lark, a guy, producer, offered it to me. We had a falling out. But I saw some locations, and when I saw those locations, I just thought a post-apocalyptic sequel to Slime City could be fun. And while these thoughts were in my head, I was brought out to a really good film festival, the Beloit International Film Festival in Wisconsin. Uh, the connection was that Rob Tomorrow, who did the Slime City score, was involved. So they brought us out there. They brought me, they brought Robert Sabin, they brought Mary. And I got to hang out with them again, the three of us, for the first time. And that was really, I was telling them some of my crazy ideas for this wild sci-fi sequel. And uh, they, they probably didn't think I was going to do it, but I went right home and wrote the script. And uh, I, my motivation at that point was I felt like I had not made a good film yet. I knew that there were fans of all three of my films, but I wasn't satisfied with any of them. And I wanted to make just one film for myself that I could be really happy with to show that I could do it and that I didn't care if I ever made another film after that. And so I made this crazy idea for a sequel. It's still the favorite of my films. I, I love it. I know the fans are hot and cold. Some like it more than Slime City. Some hate it. Um, but it's everything I wanted it to be. And for the most part, it looks like I wanted it to be. And I think the acting is really good. I, I just really dig it. Robert Saban has been in every one of your films ex except for Killer Rack. Well, he wasn't, he wasn't in that, and he wasn't in Johnny Gruesome, although he okay. was originally going to be the hero in Johnny Gruesome. Mm -hmm. um, I brought him out for a few things. He's out in L.A. He teaches screenwriting. Um, I usually can't afford to bring him out. He does okay. do – he has a really good uh, vocal performance in, in uh, Widow's Point, playing a voice mm -hmm. that like, Jeff is talking to. Uh, but I will have him and Mary out at some point before we die <laughs> to do something again, the three of us. Well, I mean, Buffalo is getting a real energy for filmmaking lately. It's, uh, I mean, they well, just recently, they filmed the, the latest Purge movie there, a lot of it. There's a lot of film production here. When I started 10 years ago with Slime City Massacre, there was nothing. And uh, I was in on that. I was in on, on the first few ones that came here and shot here. I don't work on all of them because I'm a stay-at-home dad, so I have to pass right. them up. 
But I mean, I, I'm I'm one of the founders of the, the film community here, and the tax credit has helped a lot. And now we're at the point. Uh, I mean, I, I shot myself in the foot in helping build this up because now whenever I make a film, I always have to worry about what big films going to come in town and take away the good people that I want to work with. Right. So that constant anxiety, and it looked like nothing's on the horizon, and then boom, suddenly something's shooting at the same time as me. Well, isn't a, a Quiet Place is filming there pretty soon around the area pretty yeah. soon? A Quiet Place too will be. Uh, We'll be shooting here um, until what was the one that I except for a film I did called Dry Bones. Every one of my films has been shot in the summer. It's my favorite way to spend a summer vacation. I love making movies in the summer, but that's when all the productions come to Buffalo. So mm-hmm. I will be shooting the next one in the winter and <laughs> the off season just to try and get away from the you know the, the scheduling conflicts with with all the crew people. Yeah, that was. Um, um, my my housemate's comment about she's like yeah if if you'd ever talk to any filmmakers from Buffalo, Greg Lamberson's probably gotten him a job on something. Yeah, I uh, I was a first assistant director on a film Chris Ray produced, Chris Olin Ray called Battle Dogs, which was on the Sci Fi Channel. That's how I met Craig Sheffer, and then I was like a line producer, associate producer on a few films. And then I set up a film for Chris, the first one that Fred did that I worked on. I was the guy who set up the crew and stuff. And now they could, they they know Buffalo, downtown Buffalo, Chris and his father, better than I do. I live in the suburbs. So now they know they have all those contacts. And I've worked – I've been a, a script guy for them. I've been a key PA. I had to turn on a job just recently with them as a first AD. I'm honestly not somebody who wants to work on other films. <laughs> right. It's funny in New York City, I never would have said, "Oh, I have to work on a film because we have no money." But it's true. And if I work on a film as a crew person, it's either because I'm friends with Chris and I enjoy working with him, or it's because we're broke. You know, every time my wife now works as my co-producer, so when I'm developing a film, she has to be the one to go out and get a regular job, and then we make a movie. And that takes us six months or however long, and then we're dead broke, and then it's sort of a coin toss. Is she going to find a regular job, or am I going to have to work on a film? And they tend to come along when I need them. I, I, I'm a, I have more opportunities to work on films here in Buffalo than I ever had when I lived in New York City. It just tickles me that, like, you know, you've, you've got... And I admire people like Fred Olin Ray, who, you know, he did Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and has had, and I'd been hearing his name ever since the Psychotronic film. And, you know, people would often, oh, this is an awful movie or something, but he's just worked forever. And not, he'll do a movie for the Lifetime Network about a mother and daughter. He has mostly movies for the Lifetime Network at this yeah, point. Yeah. He yeah, told yeah. me I don't I don't think this is still the case because I think his his home situation has changed a little bit. There was a point where he was doing six of these TV movies a year. That's some damn good money. Now you shoot him in two weeks. You have to make all sorts of compromises. Very often the scripts are pre-approved by the distributors or the person the go between between you and, and Lifetime. So I, I question how much uh, creative satisfaction there is in it. 
but it's good money. It's good work. It's doing what you want to do. He's the boss on his films. Chris is also the boss on his films. Uh, so they got, they got a good thing going. Uh, that's the thing. It says to me that somebody who loves the process of it, he loves, you know, being on a film set. He's up, he is a great storyteller. Uh, the first few films, I was like the key PA. You know, they're, they're not in a lot of positions. So that you have three PAs, and I would be the key PA, which basically meant I would stand on set and during downtime listen to Fred's stories. And he's got a million of them. And he's a great storyteller. And he's worked, he's made films in India and has insane stories about that and knows everybody. And just, you know, Frank Handelotter is the same way, these guys. They are real film historians, trivia buffs. They're just so much knowledge <laughs> and stories that you wouldn't hear otherwise that, that you can uh, be very entertained by. Well, see, I think I think the thing, what, what I like about Fred Olin Ray is like, I sort of, when I would read about him, it, it would sort of be in the context of like the book, uh, the Golden Turkey Awards, you know, this guy made awful movies. And usually somebody like that sort of drops out of filmmaking or whatever. But with him, it was probably more of just like this guy really wanted to make movies. He knew what he wanted to do and then had a period of where he actually learned, taught himself how to do it. So there was some ineptitude because it was like almost like a starting from scratch thing. And here you are 30 or 40 years later. And now when when you see his work now, it's, you know, he's he's a fill. He just he is fluent in the language of film and how to set it up and, and uh some very goofy movies that were intentionally goofy you know to satisfy the video market mm -hmm. and then the market changed and every time the market changes he changes with it and he he definitely knows how to direct and and definitely expects top performances from his crew he expects them to know what he knows to, to you know he wants to tell you what he wants once <laughs> he doesn't want to repeat himself and and in a level of like admiration for filmmakers, you know, I love, you know, the Stanley Kubrick, Scorsese and, you know, the the great filmmakers and stuff. But I put on the same level the people who just sort of like put themselves in there from the bottom and, you know, because as a film student i've never made a, i've never completed a full-length motion picture i'd love to but i know even the worst movie i've ever seen ever on screen whatever that happened to be it got finished and that's the such an accomplishment the same thing and and i also hold novelists and, and as i'm talking to two two writers here that can actually write something because there's a zillion people who would want to write a book, but to actually get a book, no matter how good or bad, done from beginning to end and do it is like this huge accomplishment to me. And with with someone like Fred Olin Ray, who, who just like stuck with it for 40 years until they, you know, and it didn't take him 40 years to reach out. He's been probably 20 years of being at that point where he can do exactly what he wants to do. That's like I'm a top tier achievement Olin, for me. I'm looking at Fred Olin Ray's IMDb page right now. 156 credits. Yeah, it's crazy. And and his son Chris, when we did Battle Dogs, and that was just six years ago, 
he had already directed um, one of the you know two-headed shark attack movies or something right. like that. He got his start working for the asylum, and after being a production manager for a couple of days, they said, "Okay, you're going to direct this one now." That's how he directed his first film. He produced Battle Dogs, but when we worked on it, he was showing me and Sam Qualiana, who did Snow Shark. He, he was my second AD. I was the first AD. He was showing us footage from like a web series he was doing and talking about like a $30,000 film he was going to direct. And he was really proud that that was his own film. Well, you look at his credits now and he's directed like 69 movies in six years. It's insane. I, I, I know and respect Fred, but I consider Chris a friend and I am floored by how he jumps from one movie to another to another. And he loves horror like me, but Lifetime offers him a Christmas movie. He's going right. to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I'm of a mentality, you know, because I write these things and, and I produce and direct. I have to see it through from beginning to end. And I cannot do two, two films at the same time. I can write another film while I'm in the long post-production period, but I cannot hop from one to the other. And he's got his own company. He's got his own post-production people. So he knows probably the same person's going to edit this film and knows what he wants. Well, he goes off and preps the next film and he'll produce one that his father directs. He'll direct his own. He'll produce one that somebody else does. It's a stunning way of living your life. It's a breed of person. <laughs> it really is. There's, you know, they and you know they turn up on the in the the you know big pop culture movies and you know art movies and they pop up in the you know like Russ Meyer was another one of them right. that was just sort of. I think gonna, somewhere down the line we're going to have to visit either Cyclone or Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. Which I showed at my film festival, not last year, but the year before. Mm -hmm. I showed that, and I showed Chris's film, Circus Kane. I got, they were making a movie in town, and I said, finally, you're here, you know, so I don't have to fly you out. Come come be part of my film festival. And it was great to have them both be part of it. Texas Chainsaw Master. Texas Chainsaw Hookers was shot in 35. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can say what you want about the direction, but he made it in four days, and he shot it on 35-millimeter film. It, it's just it's so impressive uh, the way that he got into the business and made it work. We showed a film of Fred's a few years ago. It was a short film called, I think it was called Spidora. Spidora, a, an eight-legged love story. Yeah, and it was about uh, circus freaks and stuff. And it was a beautiful film, and it had a fantasy element. And I remember my wife and daughter both loved it. It was a great film. And he, I remember he crowdfunded it, and he said he did matching funds. He said, "Okay, I'll crowdfund it, and if people want to see it, then I'll I'll put my own money in too." That was like a passion project for him. So he's doing these lifetime type movies and making a good living at it. But then just to show that he he loves filmmaking, he did this other film, which was terrific. I'm adding that one to my list. Okay. Um, you mentioned your film festival a couple of times, I think, because this is slated to come out, I think, in August. So we're close to its running, right? Yes. Buffalo Dreams Fantastic Film Festival. This will be the seventh year, although we did a strictly horror film festival for three years before that. Mm -hmm. This one's horror, mostly horror, but there's always sci-fi, action, comedy. We've run in November most years. This year... I said, let's just once, let's do it in the summer, see how it works. So this year we're doing it in August. 
Uh, we're still in the process of watching films. We're open for submissions, so we're we run for seven days. We're not a weekend. We're not a weekend only film festival. In the past, we've done all day programming, like twelve hour days. But we have learned that Monday through Thursday, we're not going to get anyone in the house except for our diehards. So this year, it'll probably be all day on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then in the evening, uh, Monday through Thursday. But we will show, you know, a good 20 to 30 features and a lot of shorts. And it's very eclectic programming, and I enjoy doing it a lot. I mentioned that I, I've managed a lot of movie theaters. This sort of allows me to keep my foot in that door for a week every year. <laughs> Are you going to try to get Des to come down? I, the, I always offer, but, I mean, it's, it's such a far trip for him. Yeah. I got to meet him face to face in Toronto one year. He came out for Fan Expo Canada, so uh, I would love for him to come. I mean, he's he's one of he's like one of my closest friends, and I've never been in the same room with him. Well, I mean, that's how it is in the day yeah. of uh, the interwebs. I, I'm, you know, people like to dump on Facebook a lot, but I'll tell you, if if I stopped Facebook tomorrow, there are a good. 30 or 40 people out there that I have online friendships with that I would miss. <laughs> I would I would actually miss them, and I haven't met most of them in person. Yeah, fa- Facebook is all how you use it. <laughs> you know, it can be it can be terrible, but it doesn't have to be terrible if you don't want it. You don't have to argue with people on it. You can just like keep it to old friends, or you know, yeah. The connectivity of social media is is wonderful and. You know, it, all of a sudden you'll remember a name and you can yes. renew a friend or uh, through like our podcast. I've ended the Thomas who were doing the podcast. We met through through podcasting and I eventually ended up in New York City and actually meeting up with him. And, no, you know, know him as a person and as a friend now. And you and find social people, media did that. <laughs> find people with similar interests and uh I can I can see how it could probably work as a dating app if if, if I were available, but uh, I find that someone always comes along and ruins everything. Every conversation, yes. <laughs> I, I clench my teeth and oh, fuck it, I'm gonna go watch. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like unless I'm doing you know I, I you know networking and talking to friends, networking with my friends and talking to my friends when it, when it's a facebook or social media conversation about a topic whether it be politics movies or or whatever i have to enter into it as it with a sense of humor it's just like i cannot you, you just can never take any of it seriously or you're walking yourself down a dark path <laughs> i like when you try and uh, keep level with someone who's being out of control and uh, no matter how level and reasonable you try and be they just keep pushing buttons it's like, okay yeah, yeah. That that that's where the humor comes in. That's where I'm like, all right, I'm gonna see how level I can stay, and and maybe it will enrage them even more. <laughs> that's when I switch to Twitter for an hour. Oh, geez, yeah. I, oh, oof. Out of the frying pan into the fire. I don't think I've ever had arguments with anyone on Twitter. Maybe. I guess it's it's impossible not to. Okay. I have, well, I have. Uh, it depends. And it, once again, it depends on what world you want to go into, and and you probably have an, uh, a a really nice, sweet network of filmmaking people, 
Whereas like a lot of most people have like a network of people who want to talk about their politics and their religion. <laughs> and well, then, I'm guilty of that. I, I, you know, I got a daughter and I, I feel like I kind of have to use that platform to try and make the world a better place and sure. never goes the way it should. <laughs> right, right. That, that's, 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 that's the problem with it is, is yeah, is you have a, a platform like that that could do all sorts of great things and it works better would say you know you're putting together a film and you need to find people with the with a sort of technical aspect of doing something but once you get into the world of ideas and opinions <laughs> i made a comment the other day that i thought was philosophically brilliant when i typed it which was that uh you know, it's human nature for everyone to be an asshole sometimes, and Facebook is human nature run amok. Right, right. Turned up to 11. <laughs> so, Greg, thank you for spending the summer of slime with us. Happy to have done it. Um, look out, guys. I'm talking to you, all of you out there in the Aether. Um, for Widow's Point, which will be coming out sometime in 2019. <laughs> Uh, I would imagine it would be. I mean, we might could make a dis distribution deal over the summer even. It's possible it could be out as soon as October. But I suspect we'll be doing some film festivals this year, and it'll be released next year. Okay. Because... Uh, very good film. I got to say, it's a straight horror film. It's not a comedy. And uh, Craig Sheffer gives the performance of his career in it. I take none of the credit for that. It's all him. So... Um, and, uh, let's see, I guess we're going to have to go back to the timeline, Honeywell. Okay, well, that... Honeywell, oh, I thought, thought you would, I thought you were missing for a second. We got to go back to our normal timeline. So, uh, we'll let Virginia hold, fire up the transmogrifier. Once again, Greg, thank you very much. I'm so confused. <laughs> uh, you don't know the half on Amazon, it, Amazon Prime. I've seen it. It's a really good movie. It's a really good. The thing I liked about Johnny Gruesome was I got this. It felt to me like the first film in a franchise, circa 1982. Right. Well, that was the idea. I wrote the script in '86, six months after I wrote Slime City, but it was just not a film I could do on that level, and. Uh, Gave, almost gave up many times, turned it into a novel, thought that would be it. And uh, Two years ago, I finally said, I've got to make this movie and just get it out of my system. So, so watch, go and watch it, and go. Please watch go it, to, free on Amazon Prime. Right, and, and go and uh, watch Widow's Point when it comes out, support Greg, so he can continue to make more great movies, and uh, have them be made into musicals, apparently. Yes, Killer Rack the musical was hilarious. <laughs> How does that feel? <laughs> it was it was awesome, and and the way it came about was that Armand Petrie and Joe Rosler they wrote the songs for Killer Rack, they did the score, they also did the score for Johnny Gruesome and Widow's Point, but we kept adding songs to the existing script. Lloyd's musical number was something we added, so there were three or four songs in the film, and. Um, that theater was scheduled to unveil a new musical that fell through at the last minute, and they said, hey, how about if we rush this? 
And the guy, the artistic director of the theater adapted the screenplay, very similar, created new songs to go with it. And it was so fun. I went to as many performances as I could. Great cast. Uh, It was it was awesome. Now you're now you're in the now you're up there in the world with like Tommy, Little Shop of Horrors. Well, I wish it would catch. You know, I I don't understand the theater world. I wish other places around the country would put it on. But um, fortunately, Killer Rack, which I thought was a brilliant title, has been a real obstacle. <laughs> People really misconceive what it is and don't want to give it a chance. Right. Is that available somewhere that we can direct our listeners? Well, Amazon took it off streaming because they thought it was too porny, which it isn't. It's just a, it's a very funny comedy about sexism, and it's very much in the Slime City universe. And the, the guy who wrote the script included a bunch of jokes about Slime City, among other films, not anticipating that I, when I read the script, I would say, i got to direct this thing. So it's only available on DVD through Amazon. It's not available. Okay. They, they, I mean, were they confusing it with just the that sort of... The, there were a lot of sort of just boob-related shot-on-video, you know, like Scream Queens with boobs movies this that came out. So they were, they were thinking it was one of those. This particular film has two seconds of actual nudity, and it's a stand-in. And the rest of the time, it's these ridiculous monster boob puppets. Right, right. So the title, literally, Amazon's answer was, it sounds too porny. And our poster, which Camp Motion Pictures we took, but Camp Motion Pictures selected, wasn't necessarily comic. It, it, it showed a woman standing there with her coat open and the logo covered her breast. So they just didn't want to take a chance on it. And it came back on and then it came back off. And now we're trying to get it back on. Um, at that, after Slime City Massacre, that's the second favorite of, of my films that I've done. I, I think I'm really proud of that one. I think it's really funny and well made. And it's just got to be discovered and become a cult film somehow. Well, guys, go go out, go out and find the DVD. Correct. Start a cult. Let's start a cult. I'm always for that. Or get your local theater troop together and go put, put on, on the show like Mickey Correct. Rooney. Correct. Uh, Debbie Rashan is in Killer Rack as the as Doctor Kate Thulu and gives a brilliant, brilliant comic performance. I like well. <laughs> so, guys, I hope you enjoyed the summer slime, and uh, I'm going to now send everybody back to the places they belong, which means you, it's Honeywell, it's whatever rock we drag you out from under you're sending western new york i guess you could generally say you're sending us both to western new york well he's going to a nice place i don't think you are i yeah i don't know if i it's possible to send me to a nice place thomas now go
Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. Check it out now. You better move your body. Don't you ask nobody because they... I think I got it.